Hi, everyone. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And welcome to Cave of the Cross Apologetics. And today we have uh, the distinct pleasure of uh, interviewing, once again, uh, another author who uh, wants to come on to a little show that uh, we just started <laughs> reading a book and we asked and she said yes. But uh, we want to introduce uh, Nancy Piercy, uh, who's uh, the, the author of our, our book we're going through. Uh, she's a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. A former agnostic, Piercy has spoken at universities such as Princeton, Stanford, USC, and Dartmouth. She was highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today and was hailed in the Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. She's the author of The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, How Shall We Live?, and, of course, the newest book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. And we can't say enough about that book. But, uh, and, uh, of course, uh, Total Truth. And, of course, the, the one that uh, we want to talk to her about and pick her brain because uh, sometimes we need a little bit more help. And also uh, it's, it's interesting to talk to the authors and, and kind of uh, um, get uh, their perspective after the fact of finding truth. So, uh, uh, Professor Piercy, we welcome you to the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Um, now, uh, one of our, our, uh, our sister shows, uh, Tulips and Honey, on episode 17, uh, uh, kind of gave you uh, an interview, and uh, I really appreciated their uh, perspective. And uh, I think you talked a lot about um, uh, a, a lot of uh, answering a lot of questions that I haven't seen you answer on there before, so I'll definitely direct people to, to that interview. Um, but I'm just wondering if you can kind of give us a, a little breakdown of um, – from kind of your standpoint and um, your experiences with Leah Bree and going um, to uh, uh, kind of, I think everyone kind of has a spiritual quest of meeting Francis Schaeffer, actually one of our, our former pastors. He uh, studied under Francis Schaeffer for a couple couple weeks. And so uh, that's how I kind of uh, heard the name before. And so I was just wondering if you can kind of uh, get, briefly give your story of, uh, of up to that point. Yes, I'd love to. It was such a formative time of my life that I, I always like talking about it. Uh, and it's it started really, uh, well, I was raised in a Christian home, but I started asking questions when I was in high school. And I was really asking the most central question of all. I was just asking, how do we know Christianity is true? I'm attending a public high school where all the, all the instruction is secular, all the teachers are secular. And I just start wondering, how do we know what we think is true is really true. <laughs> and unfortunately, um, I couldn't find any people who would answer that question. I talked to a university professor who was a Christian. And I said, I just asked him point blank, why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. <laughs> <Wow. laughs> that, that's it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and I had a chance to talk to a seminary dean, and I thought I'd get something more substantial from him. But all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. Wow. As if it was a psychological phase. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You'll get over answering those questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll outgrow that. And so it was. I, at one point, I was about high, halfway through high school. I made a very intentional decision that if, if I don't have good reasons for knowing that Christianity is true, then I shouldn't say I believe it. I mean, you shouldn't say that about anything if you don't have good reasons for it. Mm-hmm. And so I very intentionally set aside my Christian upbringing and decided it was up to me to, to find out what was really true. And I literally started going down the hallway in the public high school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf. 
because I thought if maybe philosophers talk about this. If I can't get any living adults <laughs> to answer <laughs> the question, maybe these dead guys. <laughs> <laughs> and we really do appreciate those dead guys now. <laughs> <laughs> At least some of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, and I thought, well, philosophy is where you ask these questions, isn't it? Like, what is truth? Mm-hmm. How do you know it? And is there meaning to life? And is there a foundation for ethics? Or is it just, you know, what's true for me, what's true for you? Mm. And I pretty rapidly decided that, well, if there's no God, the answer to all of these questions pretty much is no. There is mm. no meaning to life. There is no foundation for ethics. We're just on a planet flying through space. You know, it's, it's, everything's random and meaningless. Which is which is a consistent kind of answer, right? <laughs> I, it's very logical, isn't it? Yeah, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no God, then that seemed to me the logical conclusion. And I didn't want to avoid that conclusion. Um, you know, some people just keep going to church for the social life or whatever. Mm. But if if it wasn't true, my, I actually aspired to be like Bertrand Russell, mm. you know, the, the atheist philosopher yeah. who said, who said uh, that the modern person has to build, uh, what did he say? They have to build their life on the scaffolding of unyielding despair. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but there's a certain honesty and courage about doing that. If there is no God, you should honestly face the the nihilism, the meaninglessness that, that comes from that. So um, how did I end up at Labrie, the ministry of Edith and Francis Schaeffer? I had lived in Europe when I was young, and I wanted to go back. So when I graduated from high school, I went back to Germany. And uh, then through a series of um, strange events, which I won't go into because it's so long, I did end up going to Labrie in Switzerland. Hmm. And I was not, actually, I was there to visit some relatives who were staying for the weekend. So sometimes people say, well, if you were not a Christian, why would you go to this Christian place? It's because I wasn't intending to go to a Christian place. I just (laughs) wanted to see see my relatives because they said, hey, we're at this place for a weekend, come see us. So I was very impressed by Labrie. I had never encountered apologetics before. I had never encountered anyone who gave reasons and arguments to support Christianity, to show that it was rationally supportable. That blew me away. I was, I was just, um, it's just so new, something so different. And of course, also Francis Schaeffer is known for promoting the arts. And so his aesthetic sense, I, I was studying violin at the conservatory in Germany. Heidelberg, Germany. So his his appreciation for the arts was really cool. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and then to, to be honest, back then this was 1971. To be honest, all the students were hippies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in 1971, the hippies were the cool kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. It, it seems like such a like a foreign concept today. Like uh, you, it's it's almost a, a monastery. Uh, what I have in my mind, um, uh, our our pastor said that he just randomly w- uh, walked up uh, from from the hillside and uh, there's uh, Schaefer with his long socks uh, planting something in a garden. And that's just it, it. It does seem very like communal and and uh, it, it's 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 something that I think you have maybe now online with like. Uh, going to a place and 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 uh, kind of revolving around a, a kind of a leader or a speaker or you know you have fan pages um, is that kind of what it was like was this kind of like monastery type where you can kind of go and uh, ask and answer the the hard questions of life 
Yeah, I think that's a good description. Um, he didn't start out with that as a plan. Um, he, Schaefer first went to Europe as part of Child Evangelism Fellowship. And it was, um, so he was always an evangelist at heart. But when he was, you know, was up in the Swiss Alps and when his three daughters went down the mountain to attend university, they would talk, about, they would talk to fellow students and students would ask them questions about God. And the, the girls would say, you ought to talk to my dad. <laughs> He's really good with questions like that. And so they'd take the little train up the Swiss Alp. And since it was so inaccessible, they would just spend the weekend uh, or longer. And then they would go down back to school and tell their friends. And another group would come up and they'd tell their friends until eventually they had students sleeping. Well, they weren't students yet. It wasn't structured. But they had, they had university students sleeping in the hallways and the on all the couches and on the balconies. And that's how it grew sort of organically into a, a program where people would actually come and, and live. And as their house got full, uh, another couple would say, we'd like to join you in this ministry. And they would buy a house down the street hmm. and they would have students living with them. And then another couple would come and say, we'd like to join the ministry. So Labrie was just really a group of houses in the Swiss Alps, the chalets. Uh, everyone lives in a chalet. So the group of chalets just sprinkled through a little Swiss village. Wow. Yeah, and the idea was that you would come and, and actually be part of the community. Back, right. back to your thing about it being communal. Yeah, you would you would study half a day, and then you would just live in the community and share in the chores. Uh, you talked about Schaefer being out in the garden. You know, you'd, you'd help with the gardening or the cooking or the cleaning or whatever needed to be done so that you were really part of the community. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and so from there, you uh, got, apparently, right, got questions answered, and uh, that kind of, uh, so what did that do for you, I guess, is what we want to say. Mm-hmm. Well, to, to tell the truth, um, I was so impressed that I left. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I stayed a month the first time I was there. I, I, was, I was there twice. The first time I stayed only a month, and the reason was it was so impressive that I was afraid I might um, make a decision based on the emotional attraction of that place. Mm. And Christianity had left, let me down already once. So right. I wanted to be very, very sure that I was intellectually convinced. And I needed to get away from the, the internal pressure of needing to make a decision. So I went back home, back to the States. And but but because I discovered there was such a thing as apologetics, I kept reading uh, Schaefer and Lewis and Chesterton, and eventually, uh, strictly on my own, decided I was convinced enough that it was true. Mm. But I was not part of a church or anything. Right. So I said, "Well, where do I find other Christians?" Well, I knew some back at Labrie. <laughs> so it, was a, it was a year and a half later. I went back, and that's okay. when I stayed four months, and that's where I really got grounded in understanding Christian worldview. And as as you know uh, from, from reading my books, it has informed all of my thinking and my yeah. writing since. Yeah, uh, w- when you say that um, that uh, Francis Schaeffer, he 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 had a very art sense to him. Uh, I remember that was the most impressive thing when reading the God who is there, and his dealings with like Picasso and the arts and how. Christianity shouldn't shouldn't view this the, uh, like art as this uh, kind of other 
uh, Hollywood perspective or uh, out there perspective that it it's falls under the worldview of Christ as well. And it should grab hold of it and how uh, people like Picasso, uh, his, his most uh, uh, beautiful painting of his wife wasn't this abstract uh, cubism. It was, you know, something that actually adhered to the form that he saw her in. And that was just one of the things that, that uh, struck me most was here's someone who's talking about uh, kind of uh, 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 presuppositionalism for, for more things than just the sciences and philosophy that, that uh, kind of we're, we're used to. Um, it it's, it, uh, it uh, makes me smile when uh, someone like uh, Jeff Durbin from Apologia Studios uh, talks about uh, Christian art doesn't have to suck. You know <laughs> that that uh, Francis Schaeffer is is fond of saying. You know that that art belongs to God as well. Right. In fact, um, my follow up to that was writing my book uh, Saving Leonardo, mm-hmm. which is about the arts. Yeah. And, Although I was, um, there, there are a lot of books out there now on why Christians should be involved in the arts, so that I didn't spend as much time on that. I spent more time on how can we analyze worldviews when they come to us in artistic forms, when, when the worldview is expressed not in words, where they're easier to recognize, but when they come to us through the plot line of, of a story or the characterization, or they come in a painting through the form of the painting, through the composition. So I was looking more at teaching Christians how to recognize worldviews when they come through these cultural forms. In fact, I just taught this when we're just finishing it up in my graduate class right now. Uh, we just went through Saving Leonardo. And most people don't realize anymore that the term cultural apologetics was actually coined to describe what Schaefer did because that was so unusual. Like you said a minute ago, most people think of apologetics as uh, just abstract arguments. Yeah. And he was the first person to really show that worldviews percolate down through culture, through art and literature and music and so on. And, and so we need to be worldview savvy in the arts as well. Yeah. Uh, reading some of his other ones, like his uh, manifesto book, uh, it, it's sad kind of reading it in the future from his his present, where he pretty much called, you know, kind of the, the what you talk about in Finding Truth, this postmodernist ideals and uh, at, at the time of his writing, he still kind of had hope that the world would reject kind of this postmodernist philosophy of, of, you know, what's true for me is not true for you and vice versa. And that's fine. And we can all live hunky dory. And it, it's interesting how correct he was, and especially his writings on uh, abortion. Um, he really uh, kind of was a man from the future. So uh, it's, it's no wonder that he had this this great big impact on on people. Yeah, he was prophetic. Uh, yeah. He was prophetic. And mm-hmm. as, as you know, um, the, 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 one, the thing I found most useful was his concept of truth, that the modern age has a divided concept of truth. And we cannot communicate effectively that Christianity is true if, modern, if uh, postmodern people have a different concept of truth. They're not even hearing it. Right. They're, mm-hmm. We're talking past each other, as it were. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, it was his first book, um, uh, Escape from Reason. He starts out saying the main reason we're not effective in communicating the gospel is we don't recognize that the concept of truth has changed and that things like morality and theology have been put in his. Remember, he had the, the metaphor of two stories in a building. Right. Yeah. The lower story is science and reason, and that's objectively true. But the upper story is where the modern person puts 
any anything you can't stick in a test tube and study yeah. under a microscope. <laughs> the mind, consciousness, <laughs> the arts, yeah. Yes, and spirituality and morality and so on. Mm-hmm. It's in the upper story. And this uh, he said we all that's why he said we have to practice pre-evangelism. We often have to help people recognize what we even mean by truth mm-hmm. before we can tell them that Christianity is true. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that so much because that was my story when I went to Labrie. I was such a relativist and such a skeptic that I had to go through that two-step process myself. Uh, and that was 1971. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Today. Yeah. So well, I had to, I, we had we had a lot of discussions and arguments uh, about whether Christianity, uh, whether there was even such a thing as objective truth, before we could get to the question of whether Christianity was that truth. Yeah. Good. Well, speaking of truth, that's a good segue into finding truth here, uh, your <laughs> book. And uh, so what, uh, just give us maybe a little, uh, what, what led you to write this book? What kind of motivated you in terms of, uh, you know, uh, trying to put this particular book, uh, you know, down and, and, and having it available and that sort of thing? Well, it started out with, um, I was using that two-story view of truth. And finding out that a lot of secular people hold that view to the point where they hold two contradictory views. In other words, remember, the metaphor is is two stories in a building. So in the lower story, scientifically, they hold that uh, materialism or naturalism, that we are just complex biochemical machines, that there is no such thing as free will or, or moral choice. And then suddenly you flip the you flip the next page of their book. Steven Pinker was the first example, mm-hmm. and he writes quite literally. He says, uh, "What we believe by science uh, is in contradiction to what we believe in ethics. <laughs> in ethics, we we believe in things that we know scientifically are false. In other words, in ethics, we have to believe that we are free, unconditioned uh, choosers who can cho- make moral choices." Right. which is scientifically we know to be false. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh my goodness, this is Schaefer's upper lower story in spades. Uh, yeah. The, the fact that they can, that so many leading uh, scientists and philosophers today hold two contradictory ideas. They, they know that to be told ethics, we have to believe in free will, but their science tells us we live in a mechanistic world where all of our actions are governed by natural causes. So that was what, sort of the first clue that, hey, this this is worth pursuing. Yeah. Francis Schaeffer's upper lower story is actually more applicable today than it was in his own day. Yeah, it, it, it almost seems like uh, your, your quotes are uh, what philosophers uh, kind of say in secret amongst themselves. Uh, um, I was just editing today um, your your uh, what our discussion on your secular leaps of faith, and you have uh, Galen Strawson saying that he's proved that free will is entirely impossible, but you can't really live with that fact. And so it just it, it seems like uh, um, him and and uh, a, a few other people are are kind of uh, telling telling really honest tales of what they believe or what they want to believe and that they can't even live within the scope of, of what their basic presuppositions are. Yeah, that caught my attention, too, because Francis Schaeffer used to say one of the tests of a worldview is can you live with it? 
just like a um, scientific theory is tested by taking it into the lab and seeing if uh, the chemicals behave the way the theory says they should, in the same way you test a world view by taking it into the world and seeing if you can live with it. So the world is the lab, right? It's the lab. Yeah. It's the lab for world views. <laughs> and you're right, Galen Strawson, who's a leading British philosopher today, he does say that human, human beings are essentially robots. And in an interview, he actually uses those words. He says, I can't really live with this fact from day to day. And, uh, and later in the same interview, he says, it seems we cannot live or experience our choices as determined, even if determinism is true. Right. So I thought, and this, this is what caught my eye, is that he was saying, these guys are saying exactly what Schaefer said back in, back in 1970. They are saying the same language. We can't live that way. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Or, or you have uh, Edward Slingerlin, who uh, essentially calls people robots, but they're, uh, where he's the, kind of this only free agent that is able to look down upon humanity with his free agency. And I, I was making the, uh, light with Tony that it, it sounds like a, f a form of slavery here where, where he's saying, like, you know, uh, you, you have the workers and maybe they're people on top of that uh, going going past just the the claim uh, you also have that uh, especially how um, uh, you, you look at the the different worldviews in in your reductionist chapter about Nazism and communism these seems like like perfect like you know uh, uh, lines of of of, um, of uh, ethics uh, that come out of these type of like well, of course, uh, people are going to burn humans with this type of, of philosophy. It just seems to to naturally follow from that idea. Yeah, the uh, the reductionist idea um, that in the lower story, if you accept materialism or naturalism, you are going to reduce people to complex biochemical machines. That's just logical. It's mm -hmm. it's going to happen, and and that, it's called reductionism because reductionism simply means reducing something to a lower value or status. Right. And it's inevitable that if you have this two-story worldview, you're going to be reductionist. You're going to reduce human beings to something less. And, and again, the contradiction, I find it amazing that so many leading thinkers are, are willing to talk about it now. The, the example that my students remember the best um, is Rodney Brooks of MIT, or I think he's emeritus now, but uh, he was the head of the artificial intelligence lab at mm -hmm. MIT. Mm -hmm. And so these are not fringe figures, by the way. Right. <laughs> their views sound pretty extreme, but these are leading thinkers. And he actually wrote a book where he said the human being is just a big bag of skin full of biomolecules yeah. reacting by the laws of physics and chemistry. And then he goes, oh, I realize in ordinary life, it's hard to see people that way. <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, but he says, when I look at my children, I can, if I force myself, see that they are machines. Yeah. Yeah. And then he says, do I treat them that way, though? Of course not. You know, I give them my unconditional love, even though that's really not even rational within my worldview. Yeah. Yeah. And then you say, well, how does he reconcile this? Yeah. How do you how do you live with something like that? Right. How do you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, the, the most surprising part is the last line of this section of the book where he says, uh, 
I maintain, this is a direct quote, I maintain two sets of inconsistent beliefs. And so Schaefer was spot on yeah. saying mm -hmm. that secular worldviews now are radically fragmented, divided, internally contradictory. And people say Christianity is irrational. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not only that, they at least tacitly uh, acknowledge it. Right. I mean, clearly that's what he's doing there, right? Not just tacitly, openly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you, you do have people today, uh, you, you have, uh, you know, like Neil deGrasse Tyson or maybe some of the new atheists that, that, uh, that I, and I like to, to, to kind of pull pull the, the clips from their, their interviews with people like Joe Rogan and stuff, where they try and make this like, okay, I, I, I'm a man of science, I know these things, and here's how to live from that. And uh, we just we just uh, covered a book by um, Dr. Mick Stokes uh, called How to Be an Atheist, where um, you know, essentially these new scientists are trying to be the new moralists because they kicked out all the philosophers for spouting nonsense and all the theologians for uh, believing, uh, you know, magic sky fairies. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, this is how you live and how we should take care of each other. It, it never flows from that, that uh, first floor tiers of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, I think um, the most dramatic example that I found uh, was the guy you mentioned earlier, Slingerland. And he's, uh, interestingly enough, he's not a scientist. He's a literary person who's, who's talking to fellow artists and telling them, hey, fellow artists, you need to accept this materialist worldview too. But the interesting thing about him is, uh, on, on, well, on the one hand, he uses that language too of you can't really live it. You can't really uh, believe that we are robots just you know, operating by purely material forces. In fact, he has a fa fascinating um, section of his book where he says, um, we are robots designed not to believe that we're robots. <laughs> yes, by unguided evolution, right? Yes. And, well, and that word designed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's what he kind says. Of telling. And he literally says we have to develop a dual consciousness. We yeah. have to see ourselves as physical systems, lower mm. story, and persons in the upper story. And like, like um, Roddy Brooks, though, he also says the hardest place to apply this is your children. Mm. And he talks about his daughter. And he says, you know, on the one hand, if I think of my daughter as just a complex robot carrying her genes into the, into the next generation, right? The, the, the selfish gene idea. Right. He says they, that very idea is, and listen to this, listen to the words he uses. He says that very idea is bizarre and repugnant <laughs> to me. He says it inspires a kind of emotional revulsion. And in fact, he says, if you don't feel that revulsion, something's wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. he says, there are some people who can do that, right? Who can treat one another in, in instrumental mechanistic terms. He says, but we label such people people psychopaths right, right, <laughs> and we rightly try to identify them and lock them away <laughs> yeah so here's a guy who this is amazing he is willing to say i adopt a two-story worldview and i'm urging you to adopt this view that he himself admits is bizarre and repugnant yeah that ought yeah. to inspire revulsion and would justify us in locking people up if they actually believed it mm -hmm. yeah or at least tried to live it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, this is severe cognitive dissonance. Yeah. 
And uh, it's some, this, could, this could bring us back to the beginning of the book because when I first lay out my arguments um, you know, for, for finding truth, I, I start with Romans 1 and I show how Romans 1, to use a modern term, God creates um, cognitive dissonance in people yeah. to, to drive them to recognize that their worldviews are false. Mm-hmm. So, so just explain that term, just uh, so that we uh, we we all make sure we have it here. Yeah, it might be easier to start with um, sort of the beginning. I in, okay. In uh, finding truth, what I was so what I still am excited about um, when I teach it and when I get invited to speak on it, I get so excited about it because it's a form of apologetics based on scripture, and you know most apologetics books deal with a lot of complex logical arguments, arguments. Sort of, evidences and that kind of stuff yeah. yeah and they seem to sort of float out there just in the ether yeah, <laughs> yeah. and and this is grounded in in romans one it's grounded in scripture and in in romans one paul was talking to a an audience he had not spoken to before and so he gives the case for christianity in a particularly com, um, co- comprehensive way and so the crux of it is general revelation, right? that, that there's enough evidence from, from God's creation for us to be able to conclude that there's a God. And most people interpret that as the beauty and complexity of nature, and that's certainly important. That's a good part of it. Right. I think you know, the intelligent design movement is all about that, showing that there's evidence for a mind at work in nature. But when Paul talks about evidence from general revelation, he's, he doesn't only mean nature, he means humanity. Mm-hmm. You and I are part of the created order, and we give evidence to God. And the, the basic argument is the cause has to be equal to the effect. Right? So because humans are capable of knowing, the first cause that created them must have a mind. Mm-hmm. Because humans are capable of choosing, the first cause must have a will. One Christian philosopher sums it up like this. Says, because a human is a someone and not a something, the source of human life must also be a someone, that is a personal being, and not the blind automatic forces of nature. So, or, or, or you could uh, say that this is just what the psalmists are arguing, right? Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Mm-hmm. Does he who formed the eye not see? So the beauty of this argument is you don't, you don't have to be a Christian to see that it makes sense. Right. The case for the creator fits our universal experience of our own human nature, what we know about ourselves. And so it's, it's really a summary of a lot of the arguments that I heard when I was at Labrie. Hmm. They often argued from universal human nature or universal human experience. Uh, so that you don't have to necessarily, you know, if you're talking to your kids and they're having questions about the Bible, if you're talking to students who are not sure they believe the Bible, this is a very effective argument to use with them. Yeah, good. Yeah. All right. So that's uh, so. You, so you have these five um, uh, principles, right? It's there, your subtitle here: five principles for unmasking atheism, secularism, and other God substitutes. We kind of jumped into it here. You started off uh, with uh, Romans one and how Paul has captured some uh, this basic argument for God. Right. In, in terms of general revelation. 
And you give us some principles out of that. And then from those, you kind of uh, uh, help us to see these five principles that the book is structured around. It's, that's that's kind of what's going on, right? Yeah. Um, so the first principle, um, springing, springboarding from Romans 1. Right. So Paul says anyone who rejects the transcendent creator is going to worship something in the created order, right? They'll exchange the glory of God for something in the created order. And that obviously that doesn't necessarily have to be uh, an idol. Right. It can be, well, it can be an abstract idol. You know, it's not a golden calf. Right. right. Yeah. It's not a physical something necessarily, right? Right, right. I mean, if yeah. you, read, you read devotional books today, they'll often talk about, you know, you can have an idol out of your career or an idol out of, your uh, relationships, right? Out of out of accomplishments and so on, and so in the intellectual world, an idol is anything that takes the place of God in your thinking. So mm. in your thinking, what is you know what does God function as the ultimate reality, the uncaused cause of everything else? So in that case, think of something like matter. Is matter part of the created order? Sure it is. Mm -hmm. So materialism qualifies for the biblical idea of idol because it says, well, what puts matter in the place of God is the Mm -hmm. ultimate, eternal, uncaused cause of everything else. Mm. Or reason, can can reason be an idol? Sure. And so the philosophy of rationalism puts human reason in the place of God as a source and standard of all truth. In fact, Albert Einstein called himself a believing rationalist. He understood it was a full-blown creed. Mm-hmm. So, so atheist websites, you know, the kind that our young people are going to today <laughs> to learn what the objections are, atheist websites like to claim atheism is not a belief. Atheism, atheism is merely the lack of belief in God. But no one can really think without some starting point. Right. And that's right. something... Whatever it's held to be, the self-existent, eternal source of everything else, that something functions in the place of God. So my step number one, or strategy number one, is find out if you're if you're talking to someone and you can't figure out what they're, you know, where they're coming from, or if you're in school and you're trying to figure out all these isms that are flying at you. <laughs> uh, my my students are often encountering philosophy for this first time, and it's easy for them to feel overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> And so I say, you know, find the idol. Find the idol first. What do they say is the ultimate cause of everything else? And that 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 cuts away a lot of the details. Mm-hmm. Everything else, everything else will follow from whatever is your starting point, whatever is your idol. So that's the uh, that's kind of uh, that's kind of the big picture type of thing. And then once you can get that big picture, then you can you know sort out the details as it were kind of thing yeah i mean let's take materialism again just because it's say it's the dominant worldview in academia today yeah you know lots of different theories but they're all materialistic sort of the 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 mega theory (laughs) find them all Um, but yeah once you decide that um that all that exists is matter that's your box (laughs) you know everything that's real has to fit in that box Therefore, anything that doesn't fit in that box is not real. Anything that doesn't fit 
like you were saying earlier, Patrick, consciousness, mind, morality, spirit, soul, um, it has to go, it doesn't fit in the box. And so you could, the materialist can only offer answers that fit in his own box and has to deny the reality of anything that doesn't fit. Mm. And by the way, that ends up being the source of Schaefer's two-story view of truth. Mm. The box is the lower story. That's considered what's true. Mm. Whatever doesn't fit in the box gets thrown into the upper story. And those become those, uh, you know, those useful fictions, <laughs> those useful fictions that we talked about earlier when they say, well, we can't help believing it, but we know it's false. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's, uh, that's kind of uh, your first strategy in terms of uh, identifying the idol so that uh, we can kind of get the big picture of where these folks are coming from and help sort out, help us sort out the isms that we're being confronted with and that sort of thing, right? Uh, the next one then has to do with uh, this idea that we've you've talked about now. We've mentioned a couple of times here this reductionism, and this was uh, I thought this was interesting because it seems like to me even throughout the book you're using this idea of reductionism. So usually you know you think about reductionism, you think about what you know what science does to things, right? Uh, sound is really this, right? Or seeing is really this, or whatever, right? And so, but. So that's that's usually how you think of reductionism. But you're trying. You, it seems like to me you're well. Obviously, you're doing something a little bit different with the concept of reductionism. It seems. Yeah, the, I mean, there it, there are appropriate uses of reductionism in science, like you say. Right. But where people where it becomes kind of a bad word <laughs> <laughs> is when it's applied on a more philosophical level to deny certain dimensions of the human of human nature. So. The step number two, after you identify the idol, the second step is to identify how that worldview is reductionistic. In other words, what is the low, the low view of the human being? Remember, your view of humanity, so it, we'll, we'll put it this way. If humans are made in the image of God, then if you have an idol, you will recast humanity in the image of your idol. Mm -hmm. You will mm -hmm. have to define human beings by that box, whatever box you choose you'll have to redefine human beings. And because an idol is always less than God, your view of human beings is always going to be less than the biblical view. It will always be reductionistic in some way. It will always have a lower view of human beings. It'll give them lower value, lower status. So, uh, and, and reductionism is what, well, reductionism is what I just talked about. I think I think I already covered it when I said, <laughs> <laughs> if you have a box, whatever your box is, it's going to be too small. Right. And therefore, there will always be something, some part of reality that it cannot explain, and which you will therefore deny. Right. You'll say it's not real. And that's the reductionism. Yeah. As soon as you say certain dimensions <laughs> of humanity, of, of human nature are not real, you've just reduced them. It's 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 kind of like when um, you're putting away the Christmas tree for the 64th time, and that box quite isn't you know holding its shape anymore. It's got <laughs> duct tape, and you just kind of maybe cut off one of the the branches to to save yourself from trying to take it back out. And you're just saying they're done, and then you kind of brush the brush the extra branches and, and twigs off to the side. 
Yeah, and Schaefer's illustration was a little bit stranger. <laughs> he, he said, it's like trying to stuff a person in a garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my, mine usually is, uh, it's a squid, and whatever falls outside the box are the tentacles, so you got to cut off the tentacles and pack with <laughs> the squid, so. Huh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so let me ask you this with regard to this concept. So, you know, when I first looked at this, uh, looked at your book, I said, wow, this is a great idea. So you identify the the idol, okay? And then what I really wanted to do then is to move to three and four and begin to critique. You know, I, and so I said, so why, uh, why do we do, why do we need to, how, what, how does the, um, you know, this idea of reductionism help us in terms of our, you know, our apologetic, I don't know, method or whatever? Right. So one and two are sort of helping helping just get a handle on what the philosophy or the world you was saying. And three or four is how do you test it? Right. And there are really only two types of tests, um, whether you're in a law, law court, court of law, whether you're in a science lab. Right. Or whether your kid is trying to explain why he didn't do his homework. <laughs> There's really only two major major types of questions. Does it fit the real world? And is it logically coherent? Yeah. So so can I can I stop you for just a second? So so what I was getting at is, you know, that's where I wanted to go immediately once I identified the idol. And so my my issue became why do I why do I need the reductionistic step? I guess is what I'm asking. What does that, what work does that do for us? Right. It helps you to realize why it doesn't fit the real world. In uh, other words, okay. in other words in your, um, your view of humanity is always going to be less than the biblical view. And therefore it will never fully explain human experience. It will never explain human nature as we actually experience it. Let's, let's take, um, let's take the, uh, materialist again since he's he's so useful yeah. <laughs> he's so ubiquitous um <laughs> by the way there's a usc philosophy professor who actually says materialism is the religion of our time oh wow in, in the yeah. academic world especially yeah so anyway we can be sure you can be absolutely confident that any system that starts with an idol starts with a box that's only part of you know based on part of creation like romans one says will always be too small to explain the real world. In other words, the materialists may say we are machines, but in practice, can anyone really function as a robot? Yeah, of course not. We right. all make decisions from the minute we wake up in the morning. In fact, one philosopher who himself is a materialist, but he jokes that if people deny free will, then when ordering at a restaurant, they should say, just bring me whatever the laws of nature have determined. <laughs> right. yeah. So that's where we're back to those earlier quotes where we talked about leading philosophers and scientists today who are saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a materialist. I believe uh, we're complex biochemical machines, but I can't live that way. Mm. I can't mm. help believing that we're really ethical choosing beings with human dignity. And they're caught in that dilemma. So that's where the reductionism comes in. It shows you how, their view of human nature will never fit the real world. It will okay. never fit humanity, human experience, as we all experience it. Even they do. That's why I have all those quotes in there. I wanted yeah. to show people this isn't just my critique. They themselves are out there now admitting uh, 
I can't live with I can't live with this way. And uh, let me give you one more quote. That, um, this was one of the most the, one of the earliest ones I found that really put me onto this. It was a uh, another MIT professor, um, Marvin Minsky, no. well known. Oh well, yeah, yeah. yeah you've heard of him. Oh yeah. <laughs> so Marvin Minsky basically says, uh, yeah, the human brain is a computer, and oh, oh here's, here's his famous phrase. He says. The human brain is nothing but a three-pound computer made of meat. <laughs> so he's well known for that little phrase. Mm-hmm. And of course, the computer has no free will. Uh, so the implication is, neither do we. And then he turns around and says, well, no matter. No matter that the physical world has no room for freedom of will. That concept is still essential to our models of the mental realm, and we cannot give it up. And, he, and listen to this, this line. This is a direct quote. We are virtually forced to maintain that belief, that is the belief in free will, even though we know it's false. Hmm. That is false according to his materialist worldview. So there's the cognitive dissonance again. The cognitive dissonance is caused by that fact that the concept of truth is divided in half, the upper lower story. The lower story literally contradicts the upper story. It's not like the biblical notion of body and soul, because those are complementary. This is an outright contradiction. If we really are robots operating by natural law, then freedom is impossible. Right. Consciousness is impossible. And so they're stuck with this cognitive dissonance of having to believe two contradictory ideas. Yeah. And that's that's um, and that's where Schaefer used to focus his apologetics in, in, in real world evangelism. Right. <laughs> when a concept like free will keeps bubbling up inescapably, irresistibly unavoidably, even in the thinking of someone whose worldview tells them it's false, that means they're bumping up against the truths of the created order. That means they're bumping up against general revelation, and they're trying to suppress the truth that their own experience is telling them. Hmm. So this idea then of reductionism, if I'm, if I'm understanding you, helps us to really clarify in terms of uh, what this idol uh, is... is uh, is uh, causing the person to have to accept that they that their worldview doesn't allow them to, and so it helps you. It helps you to begin the critique actually, because now you say, okay, this is where they're falling short in terms of where where the world is. Yes, exactly. Without the reductionism, you don't get to the next to the to the uh, how does it fit the real world? Right, right. It's because they have a deficient view of the human being that they will constantly run up against the limits of their worldview, the limits of their box. Let me, let me personalize this a little. Um, after being at Libri, because I became a Christian through you know, apologetics, um, you know, through arguments in supporting Christianity, I felt very responsible to um, continue, even as a Christian, to be aware of secular worldviews and how to answer them. And... I eventually realized that this was going to take a lifetime. <laughs> you know, if you have to memorize every ism out there. Yeah, right. And then, and then figure out the new ones that are coming along, perhaps, and then get to, to those. Yeah. Right, right. And then also memorize which argument goes to which ism. Right. Yeah. And I always felt a little bit of um, concern that one day maybe I would run into something I couldn't answer, an objection that I couldn't answer. And if you want, if you're going to be intellectually honest, you would have to say, if I really couldn't answer it, would I be willing to rethink whether Christianity was true? 
Because if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't, then you're not believing it just because you think it's true. Right, right. You know, you're believing it for emotional reasons or social reasons or whatever. So after writing Finding Truth, I now know I will never encounter an objection that I can't answer. Wow. And the reason is this. Every worldview, as, as Paul says in Romans 1, if you don't accept the transcendent creator, you will have to fasten on something in the created order to be your ultimate reality. Whatever you choose, that will be your box that you have to explain everything by. But whatever you choose, it'll never be big enough. You can be confident it will never be big enough. You know, why is that? Because it's a part and yeah. the part will never be big enough to explain the whole. Yeah. It's, a, it's a, whatever they choose, whether it's materialism chooses matter, empiricism chooses what you can know empirically, rationalism, you know, whatever's available to the human mind, whatever you choose, it's going to be too small. Its categories will not be big enough to explain the whole, the whole of human experience, the whole of the universe. Only a transcendent perspective, only God's perspective can explain the whole. And so but you, you, once you figure out it's idle, you'll be able to tell why it's too small. Hmm. Yeah, I, I was I was really impressed. Of I, I had to go back and, and look at the copyright date of, of 2015 uh, because you're covering concepts, and, and maybe it's because uh, just your experiences on campus, but uh, we see coming from the campuses, and now uh, it's almost full, full blown out in the real world, these concepts of, of critical race theory and uh, social justice. Um, it's it's almost that we've we've transcended or, or moved past postmodernism into this post postmodernism, where we want to have uh, what what you cover in here is that you're either a product of your gender, your race, or your class, and it, and it's topics that you really uh, hit really really well in Love Thy Body, um, where uh, you know you can never rise above your group status, and and I was really impressed of reading this the second time you were you were chan channeling the prophetic Schaefer here I think <laughs> by by identifying these and and uh, I was really impressed that you kind of identified oh here's here's two, two areas social justice and and critical race theory that uh, have come into full blown uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, every 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 person now has heard of that and so I I, I was really impressed that uh, you identified those. And that's actually principle number four, yeah. um, which is, you know, the two tests are does it fit the real world and does it hold together logically? And again, you can be absolutely certain, you can be confident that it will have a internal contradiction. In fact, the most fatal contradiction of all, which is it undercuts itself. Mm -hmm. um, see, again, it's because um, any worldview that defines humans as less than in the image of God is going to also have a lower view of reason. And as a result, as a result, well, let's let's start with materialism because that's our, our standby. Yeah. So the materialist says, um, you don't believe something because you're rationally persuaded it's true. You believe it because of the neurons firing in your brain. To which you say, well, what about materialism itself then? Yeah. <laughs> you don't believe it because it's rationally, you're rationally persuaded it's true, but because the neurons firing in your brain. And so it undercuts itself. Yeah. It, it splits its own throat. There's an apologist named Greg Kokel, who I'm sure you know. Sure. He calls this when a worldview commits suicide. <laughs> right. yeah. You know, it kills itself. Yeah. 
the uh, the technical term is self-referential incoherence. Right. So you can see why my students prefer to say it commits suicide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's very common with many of the worldviews that are out there today. Um, let's, let's say uh, Marxism. Marxism is still very popular on college campuses. Sure. There's a French political philosopher not long ago who said, nowadays when we want to debate a Marxist, we have to import one from an American university. <laughs> <laughs> so how is Marxism reductionistic? Re <laughs> Marxism says, you don't believe what you believe because you're rationally persuaded it's true, but because it advances your economic interest, right? Your economic class. Everything's economic. Everything's class-oriented. Right? Marx said Christianity is the opiate of the people. And what he meant by that is it was invented by the rich and powerful to subjugate the poor. He promises that they will be compensated for their misery in this life by happiness in the afterlife. So the rich are using religion to advance their own economic interests. To which you say to the Marxist, what about Marx's own theory? To be logically consistent, he has to apply the theory to itself. So did he come up with it just to advance his own economic interests? In which case, why should the rest of us pay any attention? Right, right. Again, it's commit suicide. Yeah, or, or, or to, to act in general, because it seems like any action will then be viewed in, in a, a demonstrable way. You're doing this only to advance, and so you shouldn't, or maybe you should, that's where it commits suicide right there is, is you know, where, where can you act then? It doesn't seem like uh, 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 doing anything or doing nothing is always the wrong answer then. That's true. Uh, and again, but you, and then you put it back on the person who's saying that. Mm -hmm. uh, it, anytime you reduce rationality to some non-rational cause, then you undercut your own position. So f take Freud. How is Freud reductionistic? Freud had an enormous impact on our modern world. And he said, you don't believe what you, what you believe because you're rationally persuaded it's true, but because of your psychological history, right? Especially sexual repression. You're a Christian because of your Oedipus complex. Well, what, to which you would say, <laughs> what, about, what does that say about the origin of your own theory? <laughs> Uh, onto the couch yourself. <laughs> and then we come to what you were talking about earlier with postmodernism and deconstructionism. What's its reductionism? It says human rationality is swamped by social forces like race, class, gender, sexuality, and so on. To which you say, well, what about your own theory? Are you just a mouthpiece for your own race, class, gender, sexual sexual orientation? In which case, why should we pay any attention to it? Right. Yeah. Right. And actually, let me throw one more in there because uh, a fast-growing movement uh, among scientists is evolutionary psychology. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> and again, it's again, what's its reductionism? The brain evolved by natural selection, and so so did the ideas in our brains. They also evolved. Not because of their truth value, but because of their survival value. Right. To which you say, what does that mean for your own theory? <laughs> it's not a matter of truth either. It arose because it was useful for survival. Yeah. And, you know, this is actually a standard tool in any philosophical toolbox. So the, 
in one sense, this is not new. What's new about it? Oh, and, and by the way, it's an ordinary conversation, too, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and what I like, too, is that it's not just you, you, the Christian, have to provide answer after answer after answer. It has the ability. Like you said, it's a conversation. Okay, uh, um, uh, uh, some of the, the atheists online uh, that are arguing with, with people um, uh, in, in video format, the, 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 the better ones, um, it, you know, they'll have the uh, uh, you don't know, uh, you, uh, you, you think that, Christian, uh, and I don't know, uh, but you definitely don't know. So there, we're, we're all done, right? <laughs> you don't have to put up anything. So it's 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 almost like we're not having that conversation in general. Yeah, and and, and there's different kinds of apologetics. You know, there's there's times when Christians are showing you know his, historical reliability. Of sure, right. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm more interested in going on the offensive, helping <laughs> 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 to show them that. And, and this is what I, again, since you guys started with Labrie, this was my experience at Labrie, is, you know, I learned that all of the isms that I held didn't hold water. You know, I wasn't open to hearing a Christian answer until my own isms were shut down, you know, until, until I realized I, I had a question. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, uh, I used to think, again, I used to think I had to memorize, though, I had to memorize you know, here's this ism, and here's where you apply that ob- objection, and here's this ism. And in finding truth, the, the, the way that this really clarifies and simplifies apologetics is you don't have to memorize. I, I show you how to use the argument, the, this, the argument from self-referential incoherence. In other words, I show you how to um, apply the argument of uh, committing suicide, why it works, and how to apply it. Right. If you identify the idol, right. then you can find the reductionism. And that's the point where the worldview will be self-refuting. Right. So yeah. Romans 1 is providing the theological rationale for the arguments that everyone uses anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then uh, your, your fifth point uh, at the end uh, that you do masterfully, and I, I think it's throughout each of the points, too, is uh, we're not here to win the debate. We're not here to cause the argument. Uh, and I, I think you do it just, just masterfully in Love Thy Body. I, I, I really, really appreciated that book, especially for the, the time and place that we're at now, um, is that you give them the gospel. You, you, you don't completely knock their feet out. You give them a, a, a hand up afterwards and uh, shake them off and give, you give them the gospel. Yeah, I take this example. Um, you know, the reason that worldviews are self-refuting is that they're reductionistic and that and they reduce reason to some non-rational force. And Christianity doesn't do that and, and therefore doesn't commit suicide. It starts with the tra- transcendent creator. It starts with a rational God who made the world with a rational order and created human beings in his image to function in that order. And therefore there's a congruence between the structure of the world and the structure of of uh, human condi- human cognition or rationality. So the irony here is that what this means is all other philosophers have to borrow a Christian view of knowledge, right? They have to assume the reliability of reason and rationality, at least at the moment that they're making their own claims. Yeah. Otherwise, they discredit themselves and commit suicide. So it's ironic that all of these worldviews, in a sense, they undercut reason, 
but they have to use reason to support their own view. It's a little like you were saying earlier, Patrick, um, when um, they, they have to assume that somehow you know, all these non-rational forces, whether it's Marxism and economic forces, whether it's postmodernism and race, class, gender, whatever it is, everyone else is stuck in, in, a, in a little cage operating by those non-rational forces, except the, except the philosopher who's promoting that view. Yeah. 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 <laughs> able to float above the cage and see things as they really are. <laughs> Um, and, and so what you're calling us to do then is to call them on it, right? How are you able to do that, right? In fact, you're not if we, right, if we apply what you believe to what you're saying. Exactly. In a sense, yeah. we're asking them to be logically consistent. Right. Yeah. yeah. Schaefer used to call that pushing people to the logical conclusion of their own worldview. Hmm. You're finding at the point of inconsistency and then, and then gently, lovingly pushing them to realize that, that, the uh, well, the logical conclusion of their own worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, lo- looking, looking to where you were at in uh, 1971 uh, to today. Uh, how do you view apologetics in, in general in the church? Do, do you do you find that we're we have too many resources now? Do you feel that uh, that we're on the right track? That where you have overabundance, which is great. Uh, or do, do you feel like we're still missing something? Is, is there still more work to be done? We can never have too much. <laughs> no, I, I, no I, there's, still, there's still a real battle to get people to even recognize that they need it. It depends partly where you live. Hmm. Uh, I used to live in Washington, D.C., and people were at least more aware there that um, you need to have a, a reasoned case for your, for your convictions because Washington, D.C. was much more secular. Or if you live in Oregon, <laughs> uh, you're more aware of the need. I moved to Houston seven years ago, and there's a lot more cultural Christianity down here. Mm. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's actually harder. I was trying to get my students. Uh, I had an undergraduate class for a while, and I was trying to get my students to get excited, <laughs> you know, get excited about the need to learn how to defend their faith. And um, finally, one of the students looked at me and said, Professor Piercy, this is Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the pushback you get here. Is you don't think you need it. I have a feeling that in Texas, that's the answer to a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a lesbian mayor here in Houston at the time. Like, wow. come on, open your eyes. Yeah. Um, uh, well, uh, we, we want to thank you for your time and uh, coming on to our, our little show and just talking with us. Uh, as I said, uh, when, when Tony and I uh, first started meeting, um, we, we started out with uh, Jason Lyle's uh, um, Ultimate Proof for Creation. That tends to be one of the books that we uh, tell the, the students that we interact with uh, what's a good starting point. And I think Finding Truth is, is a, a double-bound collection in our church library because we, we recommend them so, so much because of uh, just how well laid out uh, your book is and how how practical it is. Uh, like you said, you, 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 your writing style is, is just so well uh, laid out in, in this book that, um, that it's an easy recommend for people who 
um, are in high school or going to college and, and kind of as, as, as uh, you start pretty much each chapter with is, is someone in kind of around that college age or, or that early life stage um, of, of are, there, are there answers to be found still within Christianity? So uh, we, we just want to thank you for your time and, and uh, for, for writing your book and, and Love Thy Body. I mean, I, I recommend it to a, a lot of people because you, it, it's uh, uh, tackling the hard cases. You, I mean, you, you do abortion, transgenderism, homosexuality. I don't think there's any third rail uh, <laughs> topic that you, don't, that you don't touch on there. So uh, it, we, we've just uh, been a big, big fan of, of, of your writing and, and you in general. Well, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun talking to you because you guys are, um, it, it was clear that you were asking real questions. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? A lot of yeah. podcasts, they just have their prepared questions and you run through them. Oh, we're, we're devoting like half a year to, to, to just this one book. So we, we know oh, it well. well. Um, well, is, is there anything that, uh, that you'd like to plug uh, your, your newest book, love thy body, uh, is, is definitely, uh, again, uh, something that, uh, just recently came out is, is much needed. Uh, our church library got it. And of course I was the first person to snatch it up before it even got the little library slip card. Uh, cause I saw, first I saw your name and I was going to snatch it up and then I saw what it was about. And so I, I, I hoped that, uh, there would be another copy coming, but. Yeah, thank you. No, I, I think that I'm I'm still getting most of my requests, speaking requests and so on on Love Thy Body, just because these are the issues that these issues are growing in leaps yeah. and bounds. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it's in the news every day. It's the first time I've ever written a book where there's something related to it in the news every day. Every single day, yeah, um, absolutely. There was. A, I'll just give you one example. A few days ago, there's a. In Milwaukee, parents are suing the school district, which is good. It's good that they're fighting back uh, because of a new curriculum that uh, that says everybody gets to choose whether they're a boy or a girl or both or neither or something else. And nobody has a right to tell them who they are. And this is going down to kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And of course, that last phrase, nobody can tell them, is directed at parents, of course. Yeah. And the and the schools also not just the curriculum but the practices. Um, they 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 allow children to choose their own gender identity at school, and they do not tell their parents. Um, school personnel are instructed not to tell their parents if a child chooses a you know an opposite sex gender identity at school. So schools are now hiding this from parents, and um, that that was kind of the the final straw that caused this lawsuit. So that would be an example where this, the, the book, <laughs> the book Love Thy Body um, is actually growing in relevance because of the, um, because these, these issues are growing, gender identity especially, is just growing in leaps and bounds. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, and so uh, uh, where can uh, people find, uh, find you, uh, your work? Obviously, uh, published writings uh, anyone can find on Amazon, although the time of this, uh, <laughs> of, of this recording, uh, everything's kind of uh, at, at a standstill. But um, uh, where else can uh, uh, people find you? I do have a website, nancypiercy.com. And um, although I'm pretty active on Facebook, you, you probably get more interaction if you con- come to my Facebook page. Um, and I, I'm on Twitter, of course. But Christian bookstores, if you still prefer brick and mortar, and you should, we should go to your brick and mortar during this time because a lot of them are going to go out of business. So yeah. we, should, we should make a point of going to our Christian book bookstores that are in our neighborhoods. Great. 
Well, thank you again, uh, yeah. Professor Piercy. We yeah. greatly appreciate it. And uh, uh, I, I, again, it's uh, I'm still amazed that, uh, that that people come on that I consider my heroes uh, for for just saying yes and having this conversation. So uh, we th we thank you for it, and uh, our, our our viewers definitely are going to get a lot from this as yeah, well. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you. For, I appreciate you ha having me, and I tell you what, it was a lot of fun.